0: Here we are continuing in the chronological life of Jesus. We are in Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. So remember what Jesus is doing. He is contract- contrasting the righteousness of the law with the Pharisaic uh, um, teachings that were the oral law that had nothing to do with what God had prescribed, specifically through the text, and that, that, was, that led to part of the, the, this trouble. And so, Jesus is again speaking where the righteousness of the law should take the Jewish individual at that time, and then what we're trying to do is glean from this how it can apply for us today. So, in verse 25 of Matthew chapter 6, six For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life, As to what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, they do not sow, nor reap, nor gather in the barns, and your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil nor spin, and yet I say to you, that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or with what will we clothe ourselves? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your Heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So, he is speaking specifically about about, uh, uh, eating, drinking, and clothing. That is what he's speaking about. He's not speaking about here cars. He's not speaking about houses. He's not speaking about professions. He's talking about the very basic necessities of life. Remember what Jesus promises us in the New Testament is that we are told that with food and clothing we should be content. So in other words, there is a promise that God will provide us with food and clothing. There is never a promise that He provides us with a home, never a promise that He provides us with an apartment, or a roof over our head. If we have any of that, it is an added blessing. He never promises us air conditioning, never promises us heat, He promises us food and clothing. And so what He says here specifically, He says, don't worry what you will eat or what you will drink. Nor for your body as to what you will put on, is not life more than food, and the body more than clothing. So he is promising to take care of them in that regard, and he gives them analogies from nature. And so he says in verse thirty-one, just as he had said earlier on, he had told them not to worry. He says in verse thirty-one, "Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat? What we w- will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing?" He says, for all, for the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. So, again, he's using the Gentiles as an, as an example. And he says, you don't want to act like people like that that are worried about that. Now, I, I want to be very careful because I've not walked in the shoes that many people have walked in. I've not lost my job in this downturn in the economy. And I know there are people who, who have. So, I want to be sensitive. I was, I was reading something in... Uh, the man was writing how he was sitting in a train, and the man across from him had his feet up on the, on the uh, uh, seat in front of him. So there was these, these seats facing each other. And the conductor came by and said, get your feet off that chair. That's, it's not made for, for your muddy feet, muddy boots. So the man took his leg down, and as soon as the conductor walked away, the man put his leg back up. And he mentioned to the person sitting next to him, he said, you know, if that conductor had broken his leg in two different places, he wouldn't be speaking to me in that harsh tone. And so the idea is that this man for the rest of his life had to carry that burden of having a leg that had been broken in two different places and had to often have it extended rather than curled up. And the conductor never having to walk in that way or carry that burden then lashed out at this person. So I want to be very sensitive about not lashing out or or, or making judgments about people who have lost their jobs. But this is very specific. It is specific to the fact that he will provide for his children food. He will provide for them something to drink. And he will provide for them clothing. That is what he promises us in this particular text. That's what He's promising. Then He he gives something in verse 33. He says, But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So He says that these things come by seeking His kingdom and His righteousness. Then He says, Don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. So there's this idea that God gives us for the day. He gives us for the day. He will give us enough for this day. You can say, well, you, you know, how am I ever going to get through this finals week? I don't know how you're going to get through it, other than one day at a time. God gives grace for that day. Shireen often reminds me of this. You know, I have to say, Father, grace for this day. You want grace for this week? You want grace for the year, you want grace for the summer, it will come in packets. It's quantized. It will come in packets of one day at a time. One day at a time, it will come. That is how it will come to you. One day at a time. You can pray, Lord, grace for this day. I pray grace for this day. And that's exactly how He supplied manna. He supplied manna for the day, except for the Sabbath day where they didn't have to go out so that they wouldn't have to go out and Gather, he would provide double for them the day before the, the Sabbath. So, he provides grace for the day just like he provided manna for that day. Let that be your prayer. Father, grace for this day, I pray. Get me through this day. I have, I have a math exam this day. Get me through the math exam this day. Tomorrow, when I have the, the, uh, uh, the biology exam I'll leave that for tomorrow. But for today, get me through this day. You learn to say that prayer and it releases so much pressure off of you. I've done it. I've lived this. Grace for this day. Ask grace for that particular day. Now in Matthew chapter 11, let's turn there because there's a much more general prayer in Matthew chapter 11. Because in Matthew chapter 6, it was specifically for food, for clothing... And, and uh, uh, for food and clothing. Here is something th- that's actually a little more general. He says in verse 28, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light." This would be a particularly good passage for you to commit to memorization. Even in the midst of finals week. Because you've still got to still gotta walk to class. you still got to walk to your exams. You still gotta, so you can learn to memorize. You can pick up three verses very quickly. And the, this is something to really, that's really good to hold on to. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I know of no other season when students are more weary and heavy laden than in finals week. He says, you come to me and I will give you rest. He says, the key is this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. There it is. He says, you can get rest if you take his yoke upon you. His yoke. What is a yoke? That is the thing that they would put over the the horse or... uh, over the ox and then it is by that then the ox pulls this and is directed. He says, If you take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Learn from me. We need to learn Jesus and his ways. If you will take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart. Imagine your boss being that way. If we take his yoke upon us That is who He is. He is gentle. So He knows when we're just overcome. He knows when we have strength. He knows where we are. Then He says, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You can have all the heaviness of trying to write a thesis and get things done. You can have, you put His yoke upon you and He will see you through day by day. Now, what is His yoke? What is His way? He, he, he builds upon that in John chapter 15. So, turn to John chapter 15. And it is really specific what He has for us in that way. What is His yoke? In John chapter 15, it says in verse... Uh, we'll start reading in verse 9. John chapter 15, verse 9. Just as the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. So if ever you question whether the Father loves you, here it is. Just as the Father has loved me, I have loved you. Jesus said, I love you. So that's a given, that's established, that you have. And then He says, abide in me. There is a place of abiding in Him. The decision is ours. He doesn't grab us and say, you will abide in me. No, we make the decision, shall we abide in him? Shall we do this? He says, abide in me. And then he, he says in, in verse, uh, abide in my love, in verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. There it is, very succinctly. It says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. That is the key to Christian success. You keep the commandments of God. It says in the, in, in the second and last verse of the book of Ecclesiastes, Fear God and keep His commandments for this applies to all men. You fear God, you keep His commandments. Fear God, you keep His commandments. If you do this, you will be well. If you keep the commandments of Jesus, you will abide in His love. In other words, there is safety and protection when abiding in His love. There is something that will cause your face and your heart to go upward when you abide in His love. And this abiding in His love is maintained by keeping his commandments. You know, there's always, what should I do? What should I do? What should... Keep His commandments. Keep His commandments. What did He command? Now, many people will say, you got to do this, you got to do this, you've got to do this. Well, show me. Show me in the Bible where it says that. You keep His commandments. Keep the commandments of Jesus in the New Testament They are spelled out. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love... These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be made full. You will maintain your joy if you keep his commandments. I know and I have seen what the decadent life brings upon people. You can see young people who think they have the world by the tail. And I know that within another decade they are going to be totally wiped out. They're going to have lost their spouse. They're going to have, have, have trashed, in many cases, their job. They're going to wipe themselves out. They're going to have terrible results in their family because they think that they can participate in all sorts of things which are, which are decadent. Not so. They cannot. If you want to maintain your joy and have your joy be made full, you keep His commandments. Fearing God and keeping His commandments. Okay, let's turn back to... Uh, The the Sermon on the Mount. We are in Matthew chapter 7 now, verse 1. Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge, and you will not be judged. For in the way way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold the log in, in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Okay, so look at the picture here. Envision this picture with me. Alright, so I have a log Say, coming out of my left eye. is a log. Alright? And you've got an eyelash in your eye. So I grab a pair of forceps and I say, let me get that out for you. (laughs) <laughs> He'd like, hey, what are you talking about? You want to get this eyelash out of my eye? And you've got a log in your own eye? No, thank you. This is the picture that Jesus builds. This is not my picture. This is his picture. And then he says that often, in the way we judge, this is exactly the picture. That I'm trying to take this eyelash with forceps out of my brother's eye. And I've got a log out of my own eye, so I've got to keep turning my head to get this log out of the way so I can reach your eye. This is the picture that Jesus builds for us. so let's let's see something about what he might mean by judging. Is there not a place to judge? Do we not have judgments sometimes in the church? Let me give you an example where clearly the New Testament Calls in a place of judgment, and then we'll see where we shouldn't be judging. So, if you turn, for example, to First Corinthians and First Corinthians chapter five. In First Corinthians chapter five, Paul is rebuking immora- uh, immorality. He's rebuking immorality in John in First Corinthians chapter five. So, in First Corinthians chapter five, verse one, Paul is writing a letter to the church of Corinth, and and. Uh, um, Something had been reported to him, so he's writing a letter to this church. And he says, It is actually reported that there is immorality among you, and immorality of such a kind as does not exist even among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. Okay, so there is a man who is sleeping with his father's wife. That means his stepmother. All right? So this guy is shacking up with his stepmother. I mean, even in our society, in 2012, we would look upon that as, as probably, you know, you know, something that isn't right here. Even in all the tolerance that we're told to have, that one is, is, is probably wrong. You know, we would all agree to that, wouldn't we? So, even in our culture, you would agree to that. Okay. In verse 2, you have become arrogant and you have not mourned instead, so that the one who had done this deed would be removed from your midst. For I, on my part, though absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged him who has so committed this, as though I were present. In the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of our Lord Jesus. I mean, that's a pretty strong judgment. He said, I have delivered such a one over to Satan. So this is his prayer to God. He's not there, remember? He says, his prayer is that this one would be delivered over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul may be saved. So in other words, as his flesh is decaying, that he would turn and say, what have I done? And that he would repent so that his soul could be saved. There is a judgment that comes. And he told the church there, execute this judgment. Because Paul's stuck in prison writing this letter. And so he's saying, Execute this judgment. Now look in Second Corinthians, Second Corinthians chapter two. Second Corinthians chapter two. He's writing now another letter to the Corinthians. And apparently the Corinthian church had dealt with this guy, had put him out of the church, and the guy repented. The guy turned from his ways. Now Paul is writing to them, Now receive him back. So look in chapter two, Second Corinthians chapter two, verse five. But if I have caused sorrow, he has caused sorrow not to but if any has caused sorrow, he's caused sorrow not to me, but in some degree in order not to say too much to all of you. Sufficient. For such a one is this punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive and comfort him, otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore I urge you to reaffirm your love for him, for to, to this end also I write, so that I might put you to the test, whether you are obedient in all things, but the one whom you forgive, but, But one whom you forgive anything, I forgive also. For indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, I did it for your sakes in the presence of Christ, so that no advantage will be taken of us by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his schemes. So Paul is saying, that one, forgive him now. He has repented. Forgive him. Welcome him back in. So they, they heard this urging of Paul, and so they dealt with this guy. They threw him out of the church, and it was a big deal. Well, what happens now? He repented and Paul is saying, now take him back. Take him back. Sufficient was the penalty. And so that he's not absolutely overwhelmed, take him back. So there was a judgment, but always in that judgment there was mercy and a place to return. So where is it not right to judge? If there is a place to judge where there's a place that the church executes judgment because of a direct word of disobedience, where might it be wrong to judge? So let's look at... uh, let let's look at Romans chapter fourteen, for example, Romans chapter fourteen so if you turn turn uh, to Romans chapter fourteen, so turn back from from Corinthians and turn to Romans chapter fourteen, and this has to do with a portion on eating meat all right you, you know some people say don't eat meat don't eat this you know some people say don't ever eat pork you know the old testament said don't eat pork you know well, what is what is What do the epistles teach us? So, in in Romans chapter 14, it says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. So, I want you to think about this. There is someone who can be weak in faith. So, who is the person who is weak in faith? Is it the person who eats whatever they want? Or is it the person who abstains from certain foods? Verse 2. One person has faith that he may eat all things. But one who is weak eats vegetables only. You know, that's really interesting. You would think that, wow, that guy's a great Christian. He doesn't eat meat. He only eats vegetables. Isn't he a serious Christian? Well, the Bible actually says that that person is the weaker one. You see, we think that, the, you, you know, you hear a guy, a guy once walked up to me and he says, oh, you know, those people are so holy. They, they don't even have sex with their wives unless they want to specifically have a child. Oh, I'm impressed. No, not impressed at all. Because the scriptures tell us that, that we can in, enjoy our lives. And, and, uh, uh, you, you, but, but sometimes in people will put abstaining as if it makes you stronger. So it says, one person, verse 2, has faith that he may eat all things, but one who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. The one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. That is a verse that I have committed to memory. So when it is a matter of conscience, it is not a scriptural command that you have to eat everything. Nor is it a scriptural command that, that you, you have to abstain. This is a matter of conscience. Just don't judge your brother in it. So when it's a matter of conscience, that's up to you. You know, there are certain foods that I don't eat. You know, and, and uh but I don't put that upon other people. So for example, I don't drink alcohol. I made a decision many years ago, thirty years ago, not to drink alcohol, so I don't drink alcohol. But I have never put that on anybody else. You can drink all you want. But the New Testament says, just don't get drunk. You know, so But you can do that. But I have made a decision for myself. Now I'm trying this new thing that I've been trying for six months, eating gluten-free. But I never tell other people they have to eat gluten-free, which means no wheat, barley, or rye. I mean, it's tough to try to do this. Why am I doing this? To try it. I mean, there's all these great athletes are trying it and it makes them feel much better. So I thought I'd give it a try. But that is personal. If I put that upon you, that's where it's wrong. Because we're going to see that. That there were men who taught in the Bible abstaining from certain foods, it was their teaching it that was wrong. Eat all the bread you want. You we served bread at our house the other night, didn't we? And Nick was eating up a storm. I mean, Nick loved that bread, and and I never said don't eat that bread. You know, eat all you want. That's fine. You can do whatever you want for yourself, but when you start telling other people they should do it, and I've met people on airplanes, we talk with Christians, and the guy starts saying, "Oh, you shouldn't eat this, you shouldn't eat that." I'm telling you, what are you talking about? Oh, you know that, that if you if you refrain from this, you, that's where it starts being wrong. It's because he says he says don't judge another in this. Verse 5, one person regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. Each person must be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord. He who gives thanks to the Lord. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. So he says that even in verse 6, 5 and 6, some people regard a certain day as higher than another day. Somebody people say, Sunday is holy. You lied on a Sunday as if, now it's worse. You know, now, now, now it's an order of magnitude worse because it's Sunday. No, a lie is a lie, regardless of what day it is. Now, we may do things on different days. I mean, people take Sundays off from work or something, so you do things. But to regard one day higher than another, he says, some people do. That's up to them. Some people regard one day higher than another. Some people think if you're not in church on Christmas and Easter, you are in trouble. Well, I feel no particular need to be on, in, in church on Christmas Day. No particular need. Why should I? I mean, this is never spoken of in the Bible. Never. We don't even know that December twenty fifth was Jesus's birthday. Nor does it ever say we should celebrate on Jesus's birthday. You want to? That's fine. But you can't put that upon another. People come from different backgrounds. There is no no indication that Jesus was born on on on. Uh, December 25th. We said, well, that's the day the church has chosen. Well, good. That's fine. People want to go to church on that day, that's fine. But you can't put that upon another. It doesn't make you more spiritual or less spiritual. That is a matter of conscience. That is where we should not be judging the other. Does that make sense? So that, that's, that's where we, 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 can, uh, we can get hold of that. So if you look... Um, In verse 13 of that same chapter, Romans chapter 14, 14 verse 13. Therefore, let us not judge one another any more, but rather determine this, not to put a stumbling, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with food him for whom Christ died. Therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of, uh, uh, about as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So in other words, if it is really offensive to another person to eat pork, for example. So if I have Jewish friends over, I don't just you know, take a pork chop and just start eating it. Right in their face. I mean, you don't do that. We won't serve pork that night. You see what I mean? If it's offending another person, you don't have to do it. That doesn't mean that I can never eat pork. It just means in their presence, I don't eat pork. And, and uh, uh, so there are things that you do not to raise an offense. The scriptures are saying, don't raise an offense with your brother. So you, you don't take this license that you have to eat whatever you want and raise an offense with your brother. Um, verse 21 of that same chapter. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have has, of your, have of your, has your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he is eatin- his eating is not from faith and whatever is not from faith is sin. So that's why when I meet a Seventh-day Adventist who feels that from Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown, that is the Sabbath day. Now, that is definitely the Sabbath day according to the Scriptures. But that they have to then worship on the Sabbath day and not work at that time because of Seventh-day Adventists, that is fine for them, as long as they don't put that upon me. That is fine for them. I love Seventh-day Adventists. They're fine people. In fact, to them, to do otherwise is sin to them, the Scripture says. Let each man be convinced in his own mind. And nor is Sunday the particular worship day. It just happens to be the day that I take, because that's the day when most people t- take it. That's fine. If I were to go into another culture and it's not on Sunday, you go to, to Israel, for example. The Messianic Jews celebrate their day to gather together, not on Sunday, but on Friday night, sundown to Saturday. They, on Saturday morning, they have their services. Why? Because that's the day off they have every week. Sunday is a work day in Israel. So you, you go to church on Saturday. It wasn't like, oh, God's after me because I'm working on a Sunday. No, I took off yesterday. I was in church yesterday. Let each man be convinced in his own mind. Look in First Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4. So this is Paul's instruction to his... His disciple Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. But this spirit explicitly says that in the latter times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. For it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. So in other words, he is coming against these people. He says this is teaching of demons that men are teaching. Don't get married. Don't eat certain foods. He says, you oppose this, Timothy, you're the pastor there, oppose this, this is wrong. Because the food is sanctified, means set apart, made good, by praying over it. By the word of God and prayer, your food is made good. So when men start teaching it, you oppose them. When they say, this is what you got to do, that's where you say, enough. That's where judgment comes. You see what I mean? So there is a place for judgment in the church. Oppose them. You want to do this for yourself, it's fine. But you oppose it if they are doing this otherwise. And there are many other instructions. For example, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, it tells what the church should be doing, how you qualify as a widow. You know, the, we think the church should take care of widows, right? All right? A woman's husband died, the church should take care of that person for the rest of their life. No. Very specific in chapter 5. It says, here's the qualifications to be a true widow. He says, first of all, if that widow has children, let her children take care of her. Don't be a burden on the church. Let her not be put on the list. Let her children take care of her. She should have raised children that, that understand this. Don't be a burden on the church. And then he says, and plus, a widow is not a widow indeed unless she is 60 years of old or older. If she's younger than that, let her remarry or let her children take care of her. And a widow can only be a widow put on the list if she's 60 years older or, or, or older, and she has no one else to support her. So, in other words, she has to have raised children, and her children had to have died. Because she can only be a widow, indeed, if she's tried to have children and raise them, and now the children have died too, then you can put her on the list. But other than that, he says, let her remarry. So there are specific things in the Word of God that specifically say so Oh that's a bad church. They're not taking care of their widows. They're not supposed to. The children her children are supposed to take care of her. And if she is less than sixty, you know what the scriptures tell her to do? Let her remarry. You say, Oh, that's hard. It's not me saying it. That is what the scriptures teach. Woe is me if I teach not the Scriptures. That's the day that you should throw up your hands and walk out. This is what the Scriptures say. There are certain tests and judgments that we're supposed to take. You know, one of of the things for choosing a pastor is to say, make sure that your pastor, one of the qualifications is they have to be a generous man. So I was on the pastoral search committee when we finally chose Roger to be the next pastor of the church. Well, what did we do? A subset, I wasn't on that subset of the committee, there were a couple of accountants on the committee, they went and they asked Roger for a copy of his tax returns. From those tax returns, they saw how much he gave to the church, and they checked that with the church records. You say, wow, that's intrusive. The scriptures say, you make sure that the man that you choose to be your pastor is a generous man. If he's going to stand up there and encourage us to give of our income to the body of Christ, we want to. and if He's going to say 10%, we want to make sure He Himself is giving 10%. That is our duty to check that. It says you are to check to make sure He is a generous man. You make sure He is the husband of one wife. You make sure that He's raised His children godly. These are the qualifications for a pastor. You have to check that. There's a judgment that has to be made. God has called us to this. When it's a matter of conscience, that's when we stay out of it. But when the Scripture specifically calls us to something, that is a matter of judgment. It's a matter of conscience that we say, Who am I to judge my brother? Before his own master he will stand or fall. And stand he will, because God is able to make him stand. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for Your Word. Your Word is so precise. Thank You, Father. Father, I pray for these young people that You give them a heart not to judge their brothers, not to judge their sisters when it comes to a matter of conscience. And Father, I pray that You teach them to learn from Your Word, to abide in You, to abide in Your love through the keeping of the commandments. Father, thank You. You could not have made it more simple to fear You and to keep Your commandments. Father, may they keep Your commandments Keep the commandments of Christ and so abide in His love. Father, give them grace for their exams. Give them grace day by day. Grace to get through this week, I pray. Grace to get through their finals. And I pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.